you know, sometimes it's just hard to live in a fallen world and watch fallen people doing awful things to other people. Um, and in fact, it was so bad on Monday, I came back, I was really kind of down. I, and I just came over to, uh, to my office to get some papers, um, to, some papers to grade. I teach a couple courses at the seminary and I came over to get some grading. And on my way in, because um, Monday it wasn't looking too good. It was, from a legal standpoint, this one particular case. I was really down, and, and I heard some noise, or maybe some would call it music, coming from the sanctuary. Um, <laughs> I'm smiling because uh, some of the perpetrators are over there. Uh, they're, they're, they're just in here jamming. That happens a lot Monday night, the, the young adults meet. And um, so I came in, and I joined in. Um, we, we played some praise songs here that we, we like to sing. And then somebody had the idea, I'm not sure who, but, uh, hey, Christmas is coming up. Let's start doing some Christmas carols. And uh, we played through the hymn book a little bit. And I could just feel all the crud sort of washing out of me as we were doing that. And it was just glorious. Those, those guys don't know how, how much they ministered to me on Monday night. And we, uh, we all like the new arrangement. Who is it? Mercy Me. Uh, Casting Crowns. Um, you have a fantastic hymn on, on page 195. Now, the, the melody is kind of old, and it, um, but uh, Casting Crowns remade this, and, and it's a very, very powerful arrangement. But sound aside, just look at these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, that's a nice... Uh, Nice little thought. We, we always say that around Christmas time, peace on earth, goodwill to men. You know, it's part of the Christmas story. Um, I thought how, verse 2, as the day had come, the, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Verse 3, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And um, boy, I could really identify with that as we, we sang that and we were playing along with uh, the, the Casting Crowns version. And, uh, but something sort of kicked in. <laughs> Verse 4, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, on Monday, I was living in verse 3. Today, court went much better. And, well, now I'm living actually verse 4 today. And, uh, again, I'm not going to go into the specifics of it. Um, that's just wouldn't be appropriate. But I'll tell you, there's just such a sense of, of thank you, God, that finally those in authority who needed to see certain things saw certain things, and we were able to prevail. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant, sublime, a peace on earth, goodwill to men. Maybe you're somewhere between verse 3 and 4 right now. Well, your verse 4 is coming. Um, sometimes it's long in coming. 
But how long did Israel wait for her Messiah? A long, long time. And when she got her Messiah, they killed him. Interesting. Well, just to share a little bit of hope before we get into this more cognitive stuff that we do on Wednesday nights these days, um, the message we're proclaiming is true. And praise God. Did I, was there a hand up? Did anybody want to jump in here? Okay. All right. Well, let's pray and then jump in. Father, we thank you for the good news of incarnation, that you're not an ivory tower God who's far, far away. You are indeed high and lifted up, but you've drawn near as well in the person of Christ to enter into this wickedness that we've made of this planet. It's darkness and despair. And I thank you that as Jesus has led the way, swallowing evil himself on the cross, leading the way upward, that we with Paul can press on toward the high calling in Christ Jesus. Lord, for all who are somewhere between verse 3 and 4, I pray that you would enable us to hope beyond all hope and to hope in Jesus, who though he was killed, was raised on the third day. Lord, we thank you for that good news. Help us to be able to defend by your spirit that most central proposition of the Christian faith, that there is indeed hope because Jesus is alive. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, um, I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight. You're going to get us in stereo. <laughs> I have about 40 or so minutes, and then Pastor Jason is going to take over. If you have the outline, we did the argument on the first page, and what I'd like to do now is hear from you. It's, it's always a fun time in my semester at Myerstown when I stop lecturing and then listen to see if any of the students learned anything and they do their presentations. Sometimes I'm delighted because they got it, they caught it. Sometimes I'm horrified because they didn't. I think, what did I do wrong? But I want to kind of just push the pause button on our study and then go back and look at what we've done and, and what it means uh, and where we're going, okay? So... Um, I'm going to get us started, and then Pastor Jason is going to take us through uh, a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 17. Fascinating passage, one of my favorites. But again, as I did with the moral argument, I'm going to give my friend and brother in Christ what he... (laughs) Uh, I'm just teasing. Um, Okay, let's get to the questions. It's been a delight, actually, to work with Pastor Pastor Jason on this project and uh, appreciate him so much. What have we learned and where are we going next? Question number one, what does the term apologetics mean? What does the term apologetics mean? Does it mean um, that we are sorry we're Christians? I hope you know the answer to that is no. What does apologetics mean? Anybody? Sticking up for the faith, a defense of the faith, that's exactly right. Uh, the apologia uh, that you read about in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Remember uh, where Peter says, always be prepared to give an account of the hope that is within you. Um, but leading to the second question, so but the whole theological enterprise called apologetics is defending the faith against its cultured despisers. Sometimes they're not all that cultured. 
um, but we're, we're, take, we're taking the heavy arguments. We're taking the big guns. We're not interested in the straw man arguments of those who haven't thought critically about these issues. We're, we're letting the big guns like Dawkins uh, and, and uh, Hitchens and others speak to us and then respond to them. So um, question number one, it's a defense of the faith. And there's a whole branch of theology devoted to this defense. But secondly, as we quote 1 Peter 3.15 how important it is to keep in mind the attitude with which apologetics should be done. Always be prepared to give an account of the hope that is in you, said Peter, but do this with what? Josh? Gentleness and respect. The attitude of the Christian apologist is not one of hostility and belligerence. It can certainly be firm and confident but it cannot be hostile. Do this with gentleness and respect. Now, why in the world do you think Peter would say that? Why do you think the Holy Spirit would inspire Peter to say that? Why isn't this uh, an intellectual arm wrestling match? Why isn't this just a rhetorical sparring match with somebody who isn't a believer? Why in the world would God, the Holy Spirit, inspire that, those two key words, gentleness and respect, through the Apostle Peter? Well, any ideas? <laughs> nice, nice. Michelle said, because Peter likes to shoot his mouth off. <laughs> he knows. How often did he open mouth and insert foot? Yeah, I can identify. How many of you have ever had soul for lunch? <laughs> I don't mean soul food. I mean soul food. Yeah. Any other thoughts? You don't get anywhere with belligerence. It seems to engender more belligerence. Okay, Josh? Okay, good. As, as, uh, just to summarize for the sake of the, the podcast, Josh is talking about you can't argue somebody into the kingdom. In fact, if you can argue somebody in the kingdom, you could probably argue them out. You know, this is not just an intellectual thing. But as C.S. Lewis, I think, rightly said, he gave the image of apologetics being the brush-clearing endeavor. It's not that you're arguing people into the kingdom. You're taking away their excuses to not come into the kingdom. Any intellectual argument that is erected, apologetics seeks to clear it away. Now, something more is required for people to take those steps toward Christ and realize actually that, they're t that he's taking steps toward them. But the point is, as Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ and we destroy every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Now, those are strong verbs there. We tear down uh, every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That's apologetics, tearing down some of those arguments that people sometimes give as to why they're not believers. Okay? But gentleness and respect, understand there is a limitation to what apologetics can accomplish, but there is some value in what it can accomplish, and that's clearing the brush out of the path, making a straight path so that people can walk on it by faith. Okay, other thoughts there on that question? Gentleness and respect? Yeah, Donna? Excellent. It's a, it's a reflection of how God deals with us. God is so patient. In fact, the Bible says in the Old Testament, God is slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, I think really when God says that in his word, the rest of the Bible is actually a commentary on that one statement. And you see God living that himself. 
And he wants his people to reflect that as well, for sure. God's patient with us. And to respect somebody else, even if you disagree with them, and let's face it, there's plenty of times and reasons to disagree, but to respectfully disagree means you're actually honoring and conferring dignity upon that person, recognizing they too are made in the image of God. And it's also sort of a built-in notion, hey, I wasn't myself always a believer, right? But now I am. Now, now how can I not be patient with others who haven't come to this saving knowledge of Jesus, okay? So there's a whole attitude that is supposed to go with apologetics, and it's fascinating. I heard Ravi Zechariah say one time, if you know who Ravi is, uh, Indian background, He's been in this country now many years as an apologist. He has said there are some people he will not share a platform with. There are some Christian apologists that he will not share a platform with in defending the faith because their attitude is sort of belligerent. And I I respect that. I, I respect that a lot. So, okay, good. Number three, can you give some examples from Scripture of where we find the early church doing apologetics? Um... We, we actually pointed out some, I, I think I gave you a whole list of about a dozen scriptures on the first night of where we see some of this happening. But any just happen to come to mind now. I mean, you can plow through the Bible if you want to or go back to session number one notes. But any come to mind? Acts, <laughs> Acts 17, right. And we'll be talking about that uh, in a few minutes, yes. Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is in Athens. And he's dealing with some people who are not yet believers, not yet followers of Christ. And he's making a case for Christ. Any others? Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is in front of the Sanhedrin, and he's making a long case. In Acts 7, the whole, the whole speech is actually a defense of Christ, as, as, of Jesus as Messiah. Um, and he's really infuriating the people that he's speaking to, so much so that they do what to Stephen? They stone him. They stone him. And uh, talk about somebody who reflected the character of Christ in his defense. Right before Stephen died, what did he say? Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Oh, come on, man. You're getting pelted with rocks. And <laughs> Wow. In other words, he says almost the exact same thing Jesus says from the cross. It's fascinating. I, I often wish, when you read Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7... You see how developed his theology was at such a young, early, early age, just, just a short time after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to the Father. I'm convinced that if Stephen had lived, we would have a couple books in the Bible by him. We would have a couple of New Testament books from his hand because he knew a lot at that infant uh, stage of the church. He talked about how Jesus, uh, you know, the temple, he's, not, he's getting accused of speaking against the temple and he... He said, no, Jesus is a fulfillment of temple and all of that good theology that he says there. It's fascinating. Okay, any others come to mind? Acts chapter 2. Peter there in his Pentecost speech, the Holy Spirit falls upon the church and they begin speaking with unknown tongues as the Spirit gave utterance and the accusation against them was what? You're drunk. You know, what? Hey, they say, we're not drunk. It's not even 9 o'clock. <laughs> it's not happy. We're a long way from happy hour. And what, you, what you're seeing and hearing is the Holy Spirit. And he quotes Joel chapter 2 in defense of this phenomena that's happening. Okay? Any others come to mind that you wanted to share? 
Any others? Yes, Josh? Oh, you have the notes from night number one, don't you? <laughs> okay. All right. Um, just pick one. Luke 1, 1 to 4, that's the preface to Luke's gospel where Luke is actually saying, hey, Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, I've investigated everything. I've interviewed everybody, and I'm presenting you a coherent case. Having researched everything thoroughly, I'm giving you a coherent case for Christ so that you can believe. It's interesting, in the first four verses of Luke, he actually writes in highfalutin classical Greek, but then in verse 5 he switches to Koine Greek, common Greek, so that he can be understood. He starts with classical Greek, almost as if to give uh, his, his gospel that he's writing there intellectual credibility with the highfalutin of his day. But then he comes down uh, to where everybody lives. He puts the cookies on the lower shelf so everybody can get them. And he says, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, good. And you can go back and you can look at uh, some of the other scriptures. All that to say this, this endeavor of apologetics is not some recent development. You see the early church itself doing it in different ways with a sensitivity to their culture and where their culture happens to be intellectually and spiritually at the time. And Jason's going to unpack some of those ideas um, in a few moments. Number four, explain the difference between offensive and defensive apologetics. Now, if you need to use the outline, feel free to do that. On the back of page one, you see the, the apologetic outline that we're using. Explain the difference between offensive and defensive apologetics. Notice I'm saying offensive, not offensive. <laughs> we don't engage. We just established from 1 Peter 3.15, we don't engage or we shouldn't engage in offensive apologetics. What's the difference between offensive and defensive apologetics? Anyone? It's actually inherent in those words themselves. You can, it's almost a giveaway. Okay, very good. It, it's that simple. In offensive apologetics, you're building a positive, affirmative case as to why there are good reasons to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day in fulfillment of prophecy, ascended back to the Father, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. You're building a positive, affirmative case. You're setting forth the reasons to believe. In fact, whenever you see the case for Christ, the case for faith, the case for creation, the case for this, the case for that, by Lee Strobel, that's an offense, uh, that <laughs> offensive, I almost did it myself, an offensive case, a positive case for why there are good reasons to believe the good news of Jesus. Okay, And in the, act, the opposite, the, the defensive apologetics are responding to the arguments against Christianity. It's actually responding to people like Dawkins and Hitchens and all of the other, quote, new atheists. They're throwing uh, grenades at the church for their various beliefs. In defensive apologetics, they, uh, we, we seek to respond to those objections. And not only that, get into their worldview and say, hey, your worldview doesn't actually account for the things you say it does. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But that's the difference between offensive and defensive apologetics. Building a positive case versus defending against the criticism of the faith. Now, um, the next question, just playing on that, uh, briefly explain the three different types of offensive apologetics. And they're Roman, it's Roman numeral one, letters A, B, and C. 
A, B, and C being classical apologetics, evidential apologetics, and presuppositional apologetics. What are the, what are the differences? What's going on there? When we speak of offensive apologetics, we've actually gotten, we, we have three tools in the toolbox there, not just one. There are three subcategories of it. So would somebody venture, and this is actually where it gets a little bit harder, but would somebody venture to describe just by how that outline uh, falls out, what the difference is between these three types of offensive apologetics? Okay, good. Joey's actually putting, him, uh, putting his finger on something that's very important, and that is this distinction between natural theology and revealed theology. So, and, and that's critical, and that actually goes to the definition of these three uh, types of offensive apologetics. So why don't we start there? Maybe I should have put that question ahead of this one. What is the difference between natural theology and revealed theology? I think you said it, but Joey, would you say it again? Okay, excellent. Let's stop right there and, and park at natural theology for just a moment. Natural theology, we don't use the Bible. We don't refer to it. We refer to things like science, philosophy, math, logic, reason. As Joey said, things that even an unbeliever accepts and can see. Um, is there any scriptural warrant for natural theology? Why in the world would you do this? Why, if you believe that the, word, that the Bible is the Word of God, and this is revealed theology, okay? Um, in natural theology, we don't use the Bible. In revealed theology, we do. But if we believe this so strongly, why would we handicap ourselves and just not use it? What are the pros and cons of natural theology? Your thoughts? Okay, excellent. Some people don't believe the Bible. And so as soon as you start quoting Bible verses, their response is, hey, I don't believe the Bible. And, and you could respond, well, too bad, the Bible's true, and I'm going to shove it down your throat. Now, it, when somebody says, I don't believe, that, that would actually compromise 1 Peter 3.15, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, are you then finished? Is there no discussion that can be had as soon as that person says, well, I don't believe the Bible? Uh, is the conversation over? Not necessarily. That's where natural theology kicks in. Um, is there any, by the way, is there any scriptural justification for natural theology, Joey? Excellent. Joey's uh, pointing to Romans chapter 1, and I would throw in there also Psalm 19, where David says, uh, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. Night after night, they pour forth speech. In other words, the world around us is talking to us about God. That's what the psalmist is saying. Now, that is so true that Paul latches onto that and says, that is so true, God can justifiably hold us accountable for denying what nature is saying to us about God. Read that passage again from Romans 1. Being clearly understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. If there were nothing to the power of natural theology, God could not hold us responsible for ignoring it. But such is the power of the testimony of nature and all that is in it. Paul can rightly say God holds us accountable for ignoring it. So we actually have justification in the Bible itself that God has a revelation of himself outside the Bible. 
And that's where natural theology comes from. By looking at what God has made, we can intuitively know or infer or even some would say prove the existence of God. In fact, that's all we've done so far in this study. In the couple of months that we've been working and laboring, we have not quoted the Bible, except in the sense of what we've just done. We've actually used natural theology arguments. We haven't quoted chapter and verse to establish the existence of God. We've done natural theology. And you see the the natural theology arguments that we've given. One, two, three, and four, they're under A. The cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the anthropological argument, the ontological argument. All of those arguments, they involve science and math and philosophy. And that's why sometimes about, you know, 70 minutes into this, people glaze over. Uh, Don't give me math and science and philosophy. (laughs) I've had enough of that growing up. But that's, there's, there's actually some merit to it in leading to the conclusion reasonably that God exists. Now, can anybody just sort of summarize? Let's go one by one here. Sort of summarize. We don't have to get overly detailed. But what, what is the argument uh, from cause? Uh, the co- what is the cosmological argument? Can somebody sort of summarize that just briefly for us? When we engage in the cosmological argument, what are we doing? What are we trying to demonstrate? Anyone remember? That was, that was a couple months ago. <laughs> Pull out your notebook, Josh. <laughs> you know, that's pretty good. Cosmos means an ordered system. Order out of chaos, some would, would translate it. Where did this universe come from? Something can't come from nothing. Everything that begins to exist must have a cause. That cause is God. So this argument seeks to argue for the existence of God based upon the necessary existence of a first cause. Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, we actually got it more deeply into this with the ontological argument. Remember the ode to nothing, the, the young man giving his poem? That's just, for me, that's the highlight, you know, the ode to nothing. Uh, what is nothing? <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan philosopher, said that uh, nothing is that which rocks dream about. Um, something cannot come from nothing. Where did the universe come from? That's the cosmological argument. And there's a whole branch of science called cosmology. Astrophysicists are involved in this uh, pursuit of the first cause. And where did the universe come from? And noticing that it's expanding. And it's expanding at a certain rate that if it were a little bit faster, a little bit slower, the universe wouldn't exist. That actually gets us to argument number two. But the argument from cause is one of the major tools in the toolbox for natural theology. Now, not just is there a cosmos, there's something about this cosmos that says not just that there's a first cause, but there must be an intelligent cause behind it because it is so what, Donna? Excellent, excellent. Big and little. There is design. And by that we mean, not just design, that would be actually a circular argument. Um, The world is designed because it looks designed. Okay, that's a circular, that's a logical fallacy. What we're saying is that the universe exhibits fine-tuning such that it can sustain life. 
Remember, at the cosmological level, we talked about those 35 dials set at just the right setting to, to support life. Uh, the strong nuclear field, the weak nuclear field, the ratio of protons to electrons, um, and on and on it goes. All of those constants that, you, that, that cosmologists deal with, there's 35 of them that we know of. If any of them were off just a little bit, for example, if the universe were expanding faster than it is, life as we know it could not exist. We would all, um, if it were expanding faster, galaxies couldn't form. If it, if it were expanding slower than it is, it would actually turn on itself and suffer heat death. Okay, so now the probability that any one of the dials could be set to what it needs to be to sustain life is astronomically improbable. But you've got 35 of them that are all set at just the right level. Okay, so at the cosmological level, we can observe astronomically the fine-tuning of the universe. But as Donna said, it's not just big, it's little. When you look not just through the telescope, but through the microscope, you see evidence of design. And we spent a whole night talking about the DNA strand and the information that you find on the DNA strand that orders how amino acids come together and form proteins which drive the cell. And that the only source for information can be an intelligent mind. So we see evidence for fine-tuning when we look through the telescope and when we look through the microscope. Okay? Then, number three, the anthropological argument or the moral argument. Actually, all of these arguments are families of arguments. But here's the moral argument. What is that one? Anthropological. We actually didn't give you all of the anthropological arguments. There are others, like the argument from desire. C.S. Lewis once said that if you find in yourself a desire that nothing on earth can satisfy, it probably means that you were made for another world, not this one. So there's actually a, an anthropological argument from desire. We didn't introduce that one. We introduced what we think is probably the best one of the bunch, and that's the moral argument, which says what? What does the moral argument say? Okay, excellent. All of us have within us a sense of what is right and wrong. Well, there's a sense, there's a standard within us that's when it's violated, we know we're on the receiving end of injustice. And that seems to be universal. There seems to be in everybody a moral law that suggests the existence of a moral law giver. That's God. The existence, now, obviously, this argument is much more, it's deeper than that. We spent a couple nights on it. Pastor Jason uh, introduced us to that. But it essentially says, um, the universal phenomenon of moral norms suggests a moral lawgiver very strongly. Um, it's a very powerful argument. It's actually a very emotional argument. Now, Pastor Jason ended up talking about love. Um, what is it? Where it comes from? Why do, why do we thrive on it? Why, how do we all intuitively know that abusing and torturing little children is wrong? Where did that sense come from? Is it a product of... Evolution? Or is it something greater than that? That's the moral argument. Okay, now, the last one that we talked about was the ontological argument. The most complex, abstract, philosophical argument. Can anybody summarize this one in just like a couple of sentences? I'm not sure I could, but <laughs> anybody want to try? <laughs> um, this is a tough one, but in some ways it's very, very powerful in my view. Anyone want to try to, if you were here? Yeah. Yeah, and, and the atheists mock that. <laughs> the, the ontological argument argues that uh, God exists. Once you understand the concept of God, 
you understand that he must exist because it is impossible for him to not exist because he's a necessary being. Uh, And it it actually ties into the cosmological argument in the sense that if you ever, if there is something now, there always had to be something. There never was a time when there was nothing. Okay, without going into all that. So that wasn't half bad. I mean, (laughs) once you understand the concept of God, you see that God must exist. He cannot not exist. You cannot conceive of God's non-existence. And if it's, uh, if you are conceiving God's non-existence, it's not God you're conceiving of. It's not God's non-existence that you're conceiving of. By definition, God is a necessary being from which everything comes. In him, we live and move and have our being. I'll stop there. So it's not, it's actually a good segue, isn't it? Um, So why don't we have Pastor Jason come up and talk a little bit about uh, the Apostle Paul in Athens doing apologetics. All right, we're going to take a look at the uh, last page there of your notes. And what you see there is you see um, Acts chapter 17. We see Apostle Paul. Now, what's happened up to this point, we see the Apostle Paul um, in Thessalonica uh, getting run out of the town with barely his life in some ways. And then we see him moving on to uh, Berea, and he's there as well. And then we see him... Uh, now in Athens, okay, and he's waiting in Athens, and while he's there, uh, well, actually, you know what, I'll just pick it up in, in verse 16 here. Uh, he's waiting to leave Athens, and this is what happens. Says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where he said to them, may we know, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening um, about the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every, that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked, very care- and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What I want to do is I want to take a look, and we're going to look and see what Paul was doing here. Paul was doing apologetics. Okay, this is, this is the, and what we're going to see is, what's really neat is, this, he was doing the stuff we have been talking about. You know, these past several weeks have been, Thick in some ways, 
Some ways uh, they've been some, some things that some people, I think, have been yearning to hear. Some people have been wanting to hear. Some people have had these questions. For me, these would be the, and it's just weird me, but these are the questions I would, I would ask. You know, I would ask, how, why is there something rather than nothing? Why, you know, I'd sit there and stroke the beard I don't have and just, and just you know, ponder, ponder these questions. I'm just weird like that. You know, what, how did things begin? How do I know this is the truth? How do I know God really exists? How can I know these things? And, I, and I'm, I'm not satisfied until I have a good, rational answer. I don't like the, well, it's just faith, just trust God. Really? Because by faith I can trust many different things. Like Dawkins said, the spaghetti monster. But I want to have good, rational basis to say, no, this is what makes the most sense. Yes, it still requires some faith because I can't see God. But it's the rational. And I can know uh, in, in every sense of knowing well, that God does exist. And so this kind of, this, what we've talked about has interested me, and I know it has interested some of you. And I know that there are others um, who have um, been yearning for something deep like that. But for others, it's kind of like the idea of, you know, this is just way out of my league. This is something I don't even, you know, why do we have to do this? Can I know that John 3.16 just spout that? I mean, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. I should be able to spout the words of God, right? They don't re- return void. So I can just give, they give God's Word, and that should be good. So if I just memorize all my simple verses, life is good, people get saved, we all go to heaven, and we sing Kumbaya or, or something to that effect, right? Maybe not. That's probably not a good thing. Um, but that's, and, and you're right, the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It does divide down to bow and marrow. It does pierce the heart of everybody. And God's Word does not return void. It's giving God's Word to people is not wrong. It is extremely powerful. It's more powerful than I think sometimes I put my, uh, than I believe. Sometimes I think maybe spouting the Bible here or there isn't effective, but it actually turns out it's very effective, more effective than anything I could come up with. But, but more than that, God has also given us other avenues with which to teach people, with, what, with which to show people that he does exist. And this is not something that we're just making up now and, you know, in the 21st century or not something that, well, the early church fathers had nothing better to do. They didn't have TV or anything, so they must sit around and, and you know, wax the eloquent and philosophical and things like that. This is something that, that we see happening. We talked about how we see it even in the Bible, uh, how we see natural. And, and we were talking about the difference between natural theology and revealed theology. I don't know if I even like that distinction. I know why it's there. It's all revealed to me. Um, I, I think what, when uh, Josh had said about Romans 1, we, when we, see, we saw that God revealed in nature. To me, it, it's, a, it's a revelation of God. It's the natural revelation. It's not the special revelation, and that's where the difference comes in. It's not the special revelation of uh, the scriptures, but it is the natural revelation. Uh, and that's what we've been talking about these past several weeks. The natural revelation, the natural theology, the classical apologetics, uh, those things which will get us to God. It won't get us much more than that. Remember, we talked about how uh, creation doesn't necessarily speak of Jesus Christ. It doesn't tell us of Jesus Christ, unless you consider nature those big billboards you pass and they, they tell you about Jesus Christ. But uh, other than that, actual just nature in and of itself. Now, we talked about with the moral argument how I believe that uh, love will actually speak of a trinity. And I, I think I can get rationally and logically and coherently there just by, by, by love. But what, what I want to see is, is in Acts, we see... Paul using uh, apologetics, and uh, specifically, in a, in a lot of ways, he's using natural theology, natural theology, natural or classical apologetics. And we're going to take a look here. Now, you see, and this is Pastor Tim's uh, actual doing here. I'm not going to take credit for all of these ten points here. Um, 
since, since I know he wanted to do this one, well, I'll give him credit for these. Uh, they, these are his uh, ten observations that we see in Acts chapter 17. And I want you guys to, he doesn't say where they're found. So that's why I read the scripture. You have it there. They have the scripture in front of us. I want us to take a look and I want you guys to see where is Paul doing these ten aspects of, of apologetics. And then I want us, I want us to, to talk a, a bit about why that's important, what he's doing there. And I think it has a lot to say to us. Before, before we actually start on those points, though, I want you to notice something in Acts 17. What, what's, what's setting the stage here? All right, sure, we have the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, right? And he's, he's going around, and he's, he's doing his missionary journey, and he was in Thessalonica, and, you know, hey, he's the Apostle Paul. I'm no Apostle Paul, and I'm, and I'm not. Um, the Apostle Paul was run out of Thessalonica. He's, he's in Athens waiting to leave Athens. But while he's there, this is what happens. He looks around, and what's the words that, that's used? What happens when he looks around? What does he see? Or how does he feel, I should say? Distressed. And why is he distressed? Is he distressed because he's probably got some stripes on his back from Thessalonica? Is he distressed because people are, are an angry mob has come after him all the way from Thessalonica to Berea to, to start another fight with him? Is he distressed because he's giving the gospel out and people aren't responding and rather they're running him out of the city? Why is he distressed? The idols in the city. His main concern is not bellyaching about what people think about him or what people think about him and his message. His biggest fear, his greatest problem, his big, uh, the reason he's distressed is because he sees where the world's at around him. He sees the, the thriving, bustling city of Athens, the center of the ancient world in many respects, um, of, of learning, of knowledge, of wealth, of, of the pinnacle of, of all sorts of Greek culture. And what does he see? He feels distressed, distraught, not because of what man can achieve, but because of what man has forgotten and what man doesn't see. And while he's standing there, he sees lost people. He sees people chasing after other gods, and that breaks his heart to the point where his soul is distressed. Now, I think we could just stop right there for a while, and just think about that. That's why we're here. That's one of the reasons why we're here. Hopefully we're here to get the tools because we see out there what's going on out there. We see people chasing idols. We see the world filled with idols. Now, they're not carved images of certain things. Maybe they're, maybe they're stamped in Detroit and they're sitting in the parking lot. Maybe they're you know, in plastic and sitting in somebody's wallet. Maybe they're uh, made out of wood on someone's property. There are idols out there, not the same way that we see here, but there are idols out there. I don't think anybody would deny that. Are we as distressed as Paul is when we see how lost the world is? I don't know. I hope we are. I pray to God that he gives me the fire and the passion and the eyes to see people as he does so that I want to be distressed when I see them chasing something that's not going to help. And I hope that will help fuel our desire to learn how to be able to express to people what they need to hear. It's how to effectively communicate the gospel. One way is to know the gospel. Okay, And we can talk about that some other time. Right now we're talking about the brush clearing for the gospel. There are a lot of people that won't, you can't even get to the gospel. As we talked about, you can't even get to the Bible because they don't, they say Bible schmeibel. I don't even believe in that. You know, and we've talked about in a Sunday school class how we can, how we can feel that the Bible is authoritative and, and uh, uh, correct in what it says and truthful. And, and that's a discussion for another time. But the idea is we need to be able to know all these avenues to be able to brush, to clear the brush, to be able to even share the gospel. And that's what we see Paul doing here. 
And that's why, I want to, that's why I want us to take a look at it. There's first this angst over where people are. If you don't feel that, pray for God to give you that heart that breaks for people who chase after something other than him. Because they're chasing something that will lead them right to hell. So as we start, just I hope we feel that distressness that Paul feel, felt in his soul. But as he does, this is what I want us to see. The first thing Paul does... As he's standing there, he's, he's distressed. So he goes out, and he's not just going to stand there, and he's not just going to say, boo-hoo, you know, these people are going to hell, or look at them, I'm better than them, uh, as maybe he used to do in his pharisaical days. Right now he, now he knows the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows, as he says, he's pretty much nothing. Everything he had before is worth nothing. It's worth you know, the, the poop that the horses leave in the streets. That's what it's worth to him. Now he, he knows that for him, Christ is everything. And he's going to tell everybody what this Christ is worth. And so he's distressed to see the city full of idols. So what does he do? He does something about it. And he goes and he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. First thing that's listed on, your, on, your, uh, on the observations there. Notice Paul's use of reason and contending for the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. I already kind of gave you where it was. I won't do that every time. I'll make you guys look for it. So you're going to, have to stay sharp here. Um, but in, in verse 17 there, he says, So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. He reasoned. He went. He didn't just go and just say, Here a bunch of Bible verses. He reasoned with them. Here's a good reason for you to understand this. And one of the definitions of this word it could mean argue. Not in the sense of, you know, a heated going to fisticuffs kind of thing. But the idea of here are some rational arguments for, for, what, we're, for what I'm trying to present to you. And where, I want to notice, too, what's interesting is where does he reason? Where are the two places? Marketplace, Marketplace and the synagogue. Two totally different places in Athens, really. I mean, first you've got the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue first. Now, it's going to be a little different there because it says that he's speaking to Jews and to the God-fearing Greeks. There's two people, two groups of people that believe in God, in, in God in general, right? So he, 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 has to, he starts a little bit different there. But he, he reasons with them. What's happening and what's going on, where he, why he's there, what happened to him, the light that he saw, who he met on the road to Damascus. And he's reasoning with them that this Jesus that came, that they probably may, might have heard about, this Jew that these other Jews might have heard about, who he really is. And that he really did rise from the dead after he died on the cross to take away all of our sins. He was the Son of God. But then he also reasons in the marketplace. And what I want us to notice is one of them was kind of an appointment, wasn't it? I mean, you don't just fall into a synagogue. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't just, especially in Athens, I'm sure, it's not like, you know, you're not in Israel. You're not just going to trip over a synagogue and, oh, well, I'm, well, I'm here. I might as well just go ahead and reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks that are around here. No, he, he had to go there for a purpose. The, the burning in his soul drove him to the synagogue. And he's at the synagogue, so he made an appointment. He made a time. He watched for a time that he could reason. Watch for those times. There are times when you can reason with people about God. Pray for those times. I've had those. Don't, don't, I don't want to say don't make those times, but in some ways don't push those times. I, I've had that before um, in some garages and places that I've worked before. A uh, gentleman, I just so wanted to tell him. He just, I, I developed a friendship with him. I just wanted a chance to tell him about the gospel. He, he, was, he was a nice guy, but I knew he was lost. But it wasn't right for me. You know, we're wrenching and, you know, I'm changing oil filter. Oh, by the way, you know, you're going to hell. You know, it's just, it, it, you, how do you open? You just don't really open to something like that. 
um, you don't trip into that situation unless you pray and keep your eyes open and look for an appointment for that. And in case in point, that what happened with this gentleman at one point was he was telling me about someone he knew or uh, that died. And, um, and I said, yeah, life really is short, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I said, you know, did you ever think about what happens after death? Yeah, you know, I guess, you know, we all just kind of go wherever God sends us. And, you know, if we're good enough, we get into heaven. Hey, I'd like to talk to you about it. And we got a chance to talk a little bit. We got interrupted. And, you know, later we got a chance to talk about it later. But you, I set that appointment in a sense that I watched for it. And when God opened the door, I, I went in and I said, hey, let's, let's chat. I didn't trick him into it, into it, but there was an appointment. The other, thing, the other place he went is in the marketplace, right? He went somewhere for the synagogue, but then he found himself in a marketplace. So he's making time to reason with people. He's watching for opportunities, but he's also just doing it wherever he is. He is, in, he is just uh, exuding Christ. As a matter of fact... Um, if you look at uh, it, says in verse 18, uh, some philosophers began to dispute with him. Why? Because he was, uh, if you look, I'm sorry, the end of uh, verse 18 there. They said this, the, the, the philosophers said something and disputed with Paul because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, where was he probably doing that? Probably in the marketplace. Right? He was just, his natural talk was just about Jesus. You couldn't mistake what this guy was about. So he looked for opportunities to reason with people, but he also just exuded Jesus so that even in the marketplace, people were asking him questions. Right? What, is, what does 1 Peter 3.15 say again? Always be ready, right? And if you have the Bible there, just real quick. We're just going to flip there real quick. Because again, this plays into why we're doing what we're doing. We, we're, the reason we're doing this whole series thing is for two reasons. The first one is, the first reason we're doing this is because we're doing this to enable faith. All right? You all may be believers, um, but there may be some of you here that aren't. There may be some listening to the podcast that aren't believers. And so we're doing this to help enable the faith. We're doing this to give good reasons, good arguments, good rational uh, um, understanding and, and, and uh, arguments for the faith. So 1 Peter 3.15 if you notice, it says, and everybody knows this verse, that, that's a good apologist. This is your back pocket verse, right? This is why I do what I do. Because in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, right? But skip up just a couple verses there. You know, if you're in my Bible class, my Bible study, remember context. You've got to go up above there a little bit. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right... You are, to, um, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. The context of this happening is in suffering. Paul's in Athens because he, he, he got driven out of other cities. He got beat out of other cities. He is suffering. But even in the midst of suffering, he is not fearing what other people fear. He is not worried about what other people worry about. He's just talking about Jesus. So much so that other people see it and ask him the reason for the hope that he has within him. Those Epicurean and Stoic philosophers look at him and saying, now they didn't say it in a nice way and say, boy, this sounds wonderful. What is this hope you have? have? They said, what is this babbler talking about? But it intrigued him enough they wanted to hear. Right? 
This is when you have your best opportunities to do evangelism is in the, con- is in the context of when something, a big life question happens. Someone in your family dies. Someone in someone else, maybe your coworker has a death in their family. They see how they're handling it. They see how you've handled it or are handling it. And they see a difference. What is this reason for the hope you have? You have that opportunity and you have that duty to stand there and say, this is the reason for the hope I have within me. It's because of the Lord Jesus Christ because I don't fear death because he conquered death by dying on the cross for my sins and raising from the dead. That's the context of 1 Peter 3.15. And so we are doing this so that people will have a faith enabled for those who are not saved to be able to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ in a a way that that you can take it to people as well um, and uh, and be able to to give a rational defense when they ask you of the hope that's within you. But the other reason too is... um, is uh, also for believers as well. We're not doing this just for unbelievers, but we're also doing this for believers. It's not only to enable faith, but it's also to secure your faith. Um, and I'm going to just take a look. We, we did talk about um, taking every thought captive, but I'm also going to take a look at Colossians chapter 2. Um, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Paul's speaking here to the church in Colossae, and we don't know what all the... um, They were doing pretty well. We don't know all of the false teaching that's going on. But he's speaking to believers, and he's giving them instruction so that their faith is strengthened. So that whatever false teaching... And when it says philosophy, it doesn't necessarily mean you know, uh, the philosophical realm or, or the, uh, in that way. Just, it's talking about teaching. Someone in there is giving some bad teaching. It would seem from what's be Paul's, uh, Paul's um, reason for, for strengthening them. He doesn't want them to be taken by, philo- by false philosophy, so obviously there's something being taught there. We don't know what it is, but Paul's reason for teaching is to strengthen them. That's the second reason why we're doing this. We're doing this for unbelievers, whether it's what you're taking to them or it's whether our words directly to you or to anybody listening. um, We want anybody who's an unbeliever to be able to know the reason that we have for the hope that we have within us. But the second reason is to secure your faith so that when college students go off to college and they're told, you know, you're an idiot if you believe that there's a God. We have science has definitely disproven that. You know, we can see, we know how everything started out there, and it certainly wasn't by God. Hopefully we've given you something, that, something that you can remember a little bit of the cosmological argument to say, wait a minute, wait, how, where did that begin? I remember that much about the cosmological argument. Where did that begin? Where did that begin? Where did, and just keep saying it until they realize there's nothing else. Uh, and that's what we, that's what hopefully we're strengthening your faith so that when people come along and say, as Christopher Hitchens says, God is not great, religion poisons everything, you're teaching child abuse if you teach your children about God, you can say, wait a minute, you know, that's poppycock, I, I, I've, I've learned this, I've listened to this, I, I have a solid foundation on which to stand to say, no, my faith is, is a faith and, and, and it's a faith of my entire heart, but it's also my mind, too. I didn't check my mind out. I have a solid grounding to my faith. So it's twofold. We're here first. Uh, all, one reason is so that we can uh, help those who need to know the hope that's with them, to know that there's a reason and a rational basis for our faith, but also for you to know that as well. And you can stand firm in the faith when those vain and hollow philosophies come flying at you. Um, so when Paul's standing in the marketplace, he's just speaking about Jesus. And that's what kind of, in some ways, gets him in trouble. Um, and then if you see, notice uh, Paul's engagement, the second point there. Notice Paul's engagement with secular philosophers and their condescending treatment of him. Where, where do you see that? I kind of gave it away, but... So that was a freebie. Where do you see that one? What verse? 
18. It says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Okay, you have the Epicurean and the Stoic. They're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. They were probably there arguing amongst themselves. And Paul just gave them another reason to argue with someone else. And the Epicurean said, you know, happiness is the end of goal of life. You should try to live and be merry. Go for the happiness. And the Stoics said, no, apathy. That's, that's what we're looking for. You know, for me, it sounds more fun on the Epicurean side. But they, they would sit there and they would, they would argue constantly. Well, here comes along Paul. And what do they say about him? What do they call him? A babbler. Now, this word, spermologos in the Greek, actually has the idea of a chicken pecking seeds and dropping seeds. So it's kind of like they're saying, you're just pecking out ideas and throwing them out without even really thinking about them. Basically, what they're saying is you're a moron. You know, we're, I'm a Stoic, and I've you know, been to Stoic school. I have a master's in Stoic, in Stoicism. I, I'm, I'm a genius here. And this buddy over here, you know, he's got a uh, master's in Epicureanism. We're, we're, we're brilliant philosophers. You're just, a, you're just a babbler. What is this, this guy died and blah, 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 whatever you're saying. That's, that's basically, they're putting him down for what he's saying because he's standing in the marketplace just exuding Jesus. And what I love what happens here is Paul says, well, wait a minute, I have, a, I have, a, I, I have something to say. Right? They say he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So someone said he's just kind of religious and he's just going off about other gods. Uh, they said this because Jesus, they were, he, uh, Paul was preaching Jesus. But they, so then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this t- new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. They thought, well, let's listen to him. Let's say it'll at least be fun, right? And they take him to the place where they all sit around all day long and just talk. You know, kind of like a pre, uh, pastor's convention. You know, we just all sit around and just talk. Um, and that was a joke. My goodness, nobody even laughed at that one. <laughs> or maybe they don't think it's a joke. I don't know. Maybe that's the case. Oh, what's that? I'm offended. <laughs> well, I put myself in that camp too. Um, but that's what they did. They, they would sit around. That was the height of Athenian culture, was to sit around and wax the philosophical, talk about things that sometimes didn't seem to matter, or sometimes did. We, we have a lot of where we are is thanks to them. But they sit around and they talk about all these things about philosophy. So they pull him in, and they want to hear what he has to say. Um, and what, what's interesting, too, is that these, are, these were the two main philosophies of the day, Epicureanism, Stoicism, and they're there battling. But they hear something different in Paul. Now, they didn't hear something different like, as in the case of, wow, he's really brilliant. Let's hear it. They thought he was an idiot. They, they at least wanted to have, hear more, but, but they heard something different. When someone listens to you and the way you talk about your philosophy of the world, do they hear anything different? Paul's view of the entire world was different than these Epicureans. These Epicureans said, live it up. It's all about happiness. The Stoics said, no, you know, they, they, this life means nothing. Let's, we should beat ourselves, basically. It's this world. Let's, let's stay away from that. And here's Paul living his life to the fullest because of what Jesus Christ has given him. It was different than those two. And they could hear it by his speech in the way that he just exuded Christ. And that's what gave him the open door to speak into their lives. Do you sound different with the way you interact with the world because of the, your worldview and what Christ has done for you? Or do you sound the same and they wouldn't even bother questioning you? Now notice also next, notice Paul's attempt to find a common ground or a starting point from which he can launch his case. They take him into the Areopagus and they're, gonna, they're asking him, okay, let's hear some more about this. And look what Paul does. Where do you see that Paul finds some common ground? You guys see that anywhere in the passage? Yeah. 
Yes, starting in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So what does he start with? He starts with those things in which they would understand, right? He doesn't start with Christianese. You know what Christianese is, right? That those, those words that we Christians use, um, you know, you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Well, to someone who has never been to church, they're saying, what are you talking about? What Lamb? What does redeemed mean? We don't use these words anymore. For a Christian, it makes perfect for someone who's been, in, uh, uh, let's say, a churchian, someone who's been in the church for a long time. They know what those words mean, and it's common language. But for someone who's not been churched uh, all their lives and is not a believer, they have no idea what you're talking about. Why are you talking about some lamb? I thought you were like a Christian and followed this Jesus fellow. What's this lamb thing got to do with anything? Paul stops that and doesn't just start spouting scripture that wouldn't make any sense. And he goes to something where he can have some common ground with these men. He goes to what he sees around them. He sees the, all the idols around them. And he says, hey, I, I notice you guys are very religious. I know you guys are passionate about what you believe. And I noticed, I just, I just happened to notice well, over here, you even have a God to an unknown God. And so what do you say? Well, let me tell you about him. Well, that piqued their interest, didn't it? Keep your eyes open for what's around you. He knew his audience. He knew those people that are around him. He didn't live so distant from them that he didn't know how to interact with them. He kept his eyes open to see those points of contact where he can say, hey, I noticed this in, in your life. You know, just, just like that, that one fella that, that, that I worked with. You know, hey, so-and-so died. And I could have just been like, yeah, that really stinks. Could you pass me the number seven wrench there? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, let's keep going here because I want to get this job done. You know, I make my, my time is my money. I'm flat rate. Let's get moving here. No, I, I said, well, yeah, isn't that interesting? That's a common ground. We both feel death. We both know the, the pain that death can bring. That's why we talked about the moral argument being so strong. Everybody has a sense of morality. Everybody knows a right and wrong. Everybody feels it. Everybody feels injustice. And so that's what we were, <coughs> excuse me, that's what uh, Paul was doing, looking for that common ground. With your friends, your coworkers, those people you're with, there's always a common ground. We always have that sense of injustice. We always have um, something with, um, um, you know, the, the financial downturn. You know, hey, what am I going to do? Why are you so happy and, you know, you got the same cuts I did in, my, in your salary? Well, I'm not trusting in, in, in my riches. I'm not trusting in, in my wealth. I'm not trusting in my 401K. I'm trusting in the God who will take care of me no matter what, who said don't worry about what you'll eat or what you drink or what clothes to wear. Uh, your heavenly Father knows all those things and will take care of you. Look for that common ground. That's what Paul's doing. He's looking for the common ground, and uh, he notes that they're religious. He notes that they worship something. Now, it's kind of different. As you may look at it and say, well, Jason, you know, people I work with, religious doesn't quite describe them. You know, they're, 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 they're like anti-religious. I don't even know if they, if they would even understand what the word religious means. They don't even darken the door of any you know, non-profit organization that would look like a church of some sort, right? They stay far away from that stuff. Well, as we, we talked about Romans 1, if you, if you take, we won't take too much time to look at it, but if you looked at Romans 1, you'll see that indeed everybody is religious in the sense that everybody worships something. We all worship something. It's, it's very simple. And, and I'll just read the verse for you. In Romans chapter 1, um, starting in verse 25, it says... Um, 
They, meaning those who have, who have um, suppressed God's righteousness, those who have turned away from God's truth, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and, worshiped the, and, and served the creature rather than the creator. And that was it. That, Paul leaves it right there because that, that's all he needs to say. Everybody worships something. It's either the creature or the creator. It's either the idols that Paul was talking about or it was the creator of the wood, the metal, whatever they're made out of. It's either the people uh, in Hollywood, or it's the, the, which are creatures, or it's the creator who made those people. It's either the creature or those things that, that are created or it's the creator who made everything. There's, you're only worshiping one of two things, creation or creator. Everybody worships it, whether they say, I'm, I don't believe in God at all. Well, you're worshiping something. You're chasing after something. You're trying to find, as Ravi Zacharias puts it, you're trying to find the origin, meaning, morality, and destiny in something. That's what we talk about with worldview. You need those answers. Why am I here? Where am I going? <clears throat> what's the purpose of life? How do I know what's right and wrong? And what happens when we die? The, mean, the, the, the questions of origin, meaning, morality, destiny, everybody has them. Everybody chases after them. They're only satisfied, truly made, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's why we have something to take to these people. But everybody worships something. They're worshiping, worshiping something that will not satisfy. We are worshiping that which will satisfy and so much more if we will only let him be the Lord of our lives. Uh, the next point there. Notice Paul's use of a cosmological argument. Paul, I didn't even know he knew that. Though we don't have the full text of his argument. Where do you see that? Can anybody find, for the trip to Hawaii, Pastor Tim's paying, the cosmological argument in this passage? 24, yes. Why is that the, why, how do, why do you say that that's the cosmological argument? He made the world. He made the world. He's pointing to the heavens. Paul's using natural theology. Good job, Paul. We just learned about that. I'm glad he learned to do that too. He looks and says, look, I'm going to tell you about the whole world. Can we all see it? You can look outside. You can, you can see it. And I'm going to tell you about the world. The God who made the world and everything in, in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Paul has a lot of theology packed into these verses. But is what he says. Look, the God who made this entire world, uh, made everything around us, he doesn't live with... He doesn't, um, he made the world and heaven and everything in it, and he doesn't live in temples. And what I want to point out here, too, is I want you to see how, how Paul draws back. When he was in the synagogue, I don't think he started there. I would highly doubt Paul started with speaking to the Jews and speaking to those God-fearing Greeks, those who believed at least in uh, the Yahweh God, um, as taught by the Jews. Uh, he probably didn't start with, I want to tell you about the Lord, the God who created the heavens and the earth. And they'd be like... We've been learning that in the beginning of the Torah, you know, Genesis 1.1. We know all that, Paul. Get moving. What, what's this new thing you're going to tell us? He doesn't need to start there. But he does with the Greeks, with those philosophers. This is important for us today. Fifty years ago, you could start with Jesus. And you could start with saying, hey, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you can have a way to go to heaven. You could start with the four spiritual laws. People would, would have a common ground with you. They knew enough about church. You cannot do that today. You can't just start with God sent his son into the world. They, which God? The God to them is totally different, is plural in some cases, than what we have. A case in point, and I, and I don't know if anybody's in my Sunday class, I, I, told, I, said, I talked about this a little bit on Sunday. I, um, 
I found myself in a marketplace. Actually, it was a cell phone store. And um, I was speaking with um, my, my cell phone guy about something, and he asked where I lived, and I told him, and what's out there, and I told him I'm living at a seminary, but what's a seminary? Uh, and he was Indian, and he was asking me about the seminary. Well, what, what do you do? And he was more concerned about, do ministers make a lot of money? Uh, we all had a good laugh, and then we, we kept moving along there. <coughs> um, but um, he, was, he, he was interested about some things, and I knew, uh, I, I started talking to him about some of the things we learned, but I knew I couldn't start with Jesus. If I started with Jesus, with a man who is a Hindu, or in his case, kind of a pluralistic Hindu, he took more than just Hinduism, but Hindu was his background. If I said, you know, hey, I can tell you about something, uh, a God who can save you from your sins and get you to heaven, he'd probably be like, great, tell me. I'd tell you about his name's Jesus Christ, he came and he lived, he was a son of God, he came and died on the cross for your sins, so that you can go to heaven, all you have to do is believe in him, he'd be like, cool, thank you, I'll give you a discount on your next phone, you know, we'll be good, I'll go to heaven, you get a discount on your phone, we're all happy. Um, and so he would take it, because for a Hindu, what's one more God? They have millions, I'll put them up there with Krishna and all these other gods on my shelf. I can't start there, I have to start somewhere else. I have to say, this is what I believe, I believe that there is one God, and I believe that this God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe that this God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it and created man. And man was made to be in relationship with him. Man sinned against this God, turned his back on this God, and we have inherited that sin. And every man since that first man has turned his back on that God. And this God desires and loves man so much that he made a way for man to have right relationship with him again. He sent his son to take the place of man, to die on the cross for his sin. When I start with that, with an overarching picture saying there's one God, this is radically different for a Hindu. Now they have to wipe their shelves clean of all the other gods to put Jesus up there. You can't start with just Jesus today in many cases. When I speak with a friend, a friend of mine who was an atheist, I had to start with the whole, kind of like what I just did there with you guys, the whole realm of, of creation. The whole, the Bible from, from beginning. If you don't know the gospel from beginning to end, you need to learn it. The creation, fall, redemption, consummation, the whole redemptive process of God. We call it the redemptive history, salvific history, if you want to call it. Biblical theology, there's many different terms, but that's the gospel, the entire gospel in the nutshell. The, the heart of the gospel is the cross, but the whole gospel is from beginning to end. And you, you need to have that because with some people, they don't have the, the framework with which to start. When you use the word God, it's very ambiguous. And so Paul, when he speaks to those in the synagogue, speaks one way. He knows his audience. And when he's speaking with the Greeks, he knows they have no concept. They have many gods. He's got to knock all of them down except the one that says to the unknown God. He needs to describe that as God come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and have that be the only God in which they believe. Not as an idol, by the way, but just in that God. You need to know your audience. Uh, And Paul does. He starts with backing up and using the cosmological argument. It is useful. Notice Paul's affirmation that God is self-existent, necessary being from whom everything comes. You guys, I'll give you that one if you keep looking right along that, that, uh, that same, at the end of 24 and then into 25. It says uh, in 24, beginning of 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples <coughs> excuse me, built by hands. He's not an idol. You can't set him up. You can't mark him with inscriptions. You can't, he's not made out of stone. This God's invisible, right? This God is not physical. He doesn't have a body. He's not made out of physical stuff. He is self-existent. Why? Because he made everything. 
And if he made everything, he couldn't be made. He is not served by human hand as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He doesn't need anything. He's self-existent. He's a necessary being. He doesn't need anything, but he is the thing from which everything else comes. He has just given you great theology about God just by in that little, in those verse and a half. So Paul makes the statement that God, uh, makes the affirmation that God is self-existent, necessary being from whom everything comes. Next, notice Paul's implication that God is transcendent from the universe and from humanity. He says uh, in 24 as well, he made the world and everything in it. Uh, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, but he does not live in temples. He is transcendent. He doesn't, no temple can contain him. You can't make a statue to look like him. He's not physical. He is the God above everything. But I want you to also see, though, too, look at the end of 25. What's interesting is he's not just the God that's out there. He is the God that's also here. He's not a deistic God, a God that creates the world and then just kind of spins it and lets it go and steps back and says, I hope that works out pretty well. He's a God that actually is involved with the world as well. Because he's the God who made everything, made the world and everything in it, and is not served by human hands, but he himself gives all men life and breath, and everything else. He's still involved with this world. So he's telling them, there is this God who made everything. He is out there. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you to make anything because you can't contain him. You can't even serve him. But he's involved in your life, and he's giving you everything. He made you. Notice Paul's assertion that the present arrangement of humanity is ordered by God to enable belief. I love this verse. This is a gospel verse if I ever heard a gospel verse. Look at verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. What's interesting here too is, excuse me, he makes him the God of everything. Okay? Now the Athenians, they, perhaps they've got, they have this uh, pantheon of gods because it's kind of a... Um, you know, a, a collection. Someone comes to Athens because it's the hub of the world at that time. And, hey, hey uh, back in our country, you know, we, we, we worship the spaghetti monster. I guess if Dawkins had made his way to Athens. We worship the spaghetti monster. Great, let's add the spaghetti monster. You know, make some spaghetti up there. And let's worship that one along with all the others. And we, just in case there's someone we don't know, and we better put on an unknown god up here. Right? He says, and he shows them from right here, he's the god of everything, who made everything, and from one man made all the nations. He's the God of everyone. He's not just my God. He's your God. He's their God. He's every God. He topples all of them in this pantheon. But it says here that um, God did this. um, I'm sorry, that God, uh, he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. Why? God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Why isn't he far from each one of us? Romans 1 tells us. Because he shows himself. The heavens declare the glory of God, says the psalmist. And Paul says everybody is, is, sub, is, um, is um, required by God to know about him because of what he has made. That everything in the creation tells of his qualities, of who he is, tells them they should know these things already about him. 
God sets people, ordains people to be where they need to be so that they can, if they will choose him, they will hear about him and know him. Why? Because Peter tells us that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. God's not wanting and saying, well, stinks for him. I hope he hears, but that, he's pretty far out there. I don't know if he's going to get it. God ordains the times set for men so that they will hear if they will respond. You are here because God has ordained that. You are where you are, where you live, where you were born, because that's where God ordained, because he wanted you to hear. Though he's not far from anyone, he makes himself available to to all. He is not hiding from anybody. He wants everybody to know about him, to hear him, to know about his son, and to and to uh, believe in him and have eternal life. That's an amazing and powerful, powerful verse. Notice Paul's inference, inference that human, humanity's existence is contingent upon a deity's prior existence. Again, 25. He's not served by human hands because, as if God needed anything because he himself gives man all life and breath and everything else. He's not contingent upon man to make a statue or anything. You're contingent on him. He, you needed him to even exist. This speaks to us against all naturalism that we just evolved or anything. He, Paul says, no, you, he gives all men life and breath and everything else. Notice Paul's citation also of non-specifically Christian sources to bolster the, his Christian argument. Paul uh, says, uh, let's move down to verse 28. For in him, Pastor Tim already quoted this, for in him... We live and move and have our being. Notice that's in quotes. He's quoting. Paul's quoting something here. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What's Paul doing there? He's using the, the arts or the philosophy of the day. And he's saying, listen, this is, what, this is what your own poets say. This is what they're speaking to. Again, he's making a point of contact, and he's showing them that you even have hints of God. I call this, whenever you see this anywhere in, in, around in the world, I call them God whispers. They're whispering about God. People just aren't, aren't catching it. God's not far from each one of us, Paul says. And this is one way. Look, your own poets talk about a God. Your own poets say that, we, that there is a God somewhere. We're his offspring, and we, in him we move and live and have our being. Remember I showed you that video clip for the, for the moral argument? And how when I see that, excuse me, when I'm in a movie theater, and there's some heart-tugging um, really get you kind of part of a movie and everybody's sniffling and crying and, and boo-hooing about it, you want to stand up and say, why are you all crying about this? There's something about that, isn't there? There's something there which is universal to all of us. There's a God whisper there. There's something that speaks deep to each one of us about that person giving their life for someone else. Why is that? And that's when we rolled into the moral argument because... We all have a sense of that self-sacrificial love which speaks about God. And we, we made the case about how that can only come from outside of humanity, from outside of time and space, and from a God which we even made the case has, has to be communal, personal, a trinity of sorts, right? There's things around us if you just keep your eyes open. There's um, Hollywood is replete with them. Why is it that, you, that, peep, that they make movies, for the most part, that have happy endings and that makes people happy? Because it's setting things right. There's a sense of justice there, a sense of setting things right. When a movie doesn't end the right way, you're upset. 
Songs, longing for love, longing for this, longing for that. Why can't I um, have satisfaction in money, in fame, in sex, in things? Why can't I have that? Because it's God whispering, saying there's something more. As Pastor Tim talked about, there's a desire outside of your heart. There's something more. Keep your eyes open for that. Paul latched onto that. There's nothing wrong with latching onto a part of the world that speaks deeply about God. There's, a, there's something wrong with being um, uh, not different from the world. We're to be in the world but not of the world. We're, but we're to be in the world. We can use aspects of the world to say, look about how this talks about God. Keep your eyes open for that. And finally, notice Paul's acceptance of the secular poet's intuitions about ontological realities. Even the poets said, look, we're, we're, we're here because of something else. We're be here because we are, we are this God's offspring. We're not just here. There's something else bigger than us. Have you ever heard that? There's something bigger. This is bigger than me. I feel something bigger than all of us. They're making hints about an ontological reality. There's something out there. I don't know what it is, but there's something out there. You can use that, as Paul did, to say, I know what that is. Let me tell you about this God who made everything, came to be with us because he loved us so much, gave himself for us so that we can once again be with him in this life and in the next. Paul used a powerful apologetic, one that is not too far from any one of you to be able to use. You guys have been here learning the basis and foundation for those apologetics, and I applaud you. And we're going to walk through the next several weeks. We're going to start talking about some, a different aspect of the apologetics, some more specific things to the Christian faith. And it's going to get a little bit easier mentally. But I want you to keep your eyes open. We are to keep our eyes open to be able to, have, to give a reason for the hope we have within us. Because God is all around us in, in those things. God is not far from any one of us. And it is our job to faithfully witness to him and to his son, Jesus Christ. Um, let's pray. God, we thank you that you are not far from each one of us. We thank you that you are the God who created everything. And Lord, we thank you that for some reason, in your mercy and your grace, unbeknownst to us and, and undeserving of, for us, you have placed us in this time and in this place such that we are here under your teaching, under your word, and that we have heard about your Son. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. Lord, may we keep our eyes open, and may, may we keep our minds engaged to be able to take your hope to a dying world. May we live it in such a way that people ask why we're different, so that we may have the opportunity to give the reason for the hope we have within us, and that we may do it with gentleness and respect, knowing that we ourselves don't deserve it, but a holy, loving, and merciful God has given it to us. And it's in your Son's name we pray, the one who has given us this life. Amen. All right, we will see you guys next week. We didn't get to finish all the questions. Two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. That's right. Well, they're not going to be here for Thanksgiving? Oh, they're going to be troopers. But, all right, God bless you guys. We'll see you in two weeks.